All right, please take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. We find the Lord's Prayer as it's commonly called. It might more accurately be called the Disciples' Prayer because he gave it to the disciples to pray. He never prayed this prayer himself. We know that because the Bible says over and over again that he was tempted in all ways like in us, yet he was without sin. It says over and over again that God is, that Jesus is without sin. So he never had to pray, Father, forgive us our sins because he was sinless. Amen. Doesn't mean he didn't pray other aspects of that prayer, but I know he didn't pray that part. But so it's really the disciples' prayer, but we could call it the Lord's prayer because it originated with him. So it's technically still a sound description, but it's the perfect prayer. And I love it because when we're told in the scripture, if we pray anything in accordance with his will, we have it. I can pray that prayer and know that it's a perfect prayer to glorify him and to set my life aright and know that I'm in the center of his will as I'm praying that prayer and I'm seeking to live in accordance with that sincere prayer. Amen. Is that a good thing to know? I find so much joy in that. And I know last week we dealt with the word hour. If you look at Luke chapter 11, we should have to go there, where Jesus also gave this prayer at another time. Uh, he just started with the word Father. Here he starts with our Father when he's asked specifically how to pray in Matthew 6. And last week I tol- told you that I was apprehended by the word our. You know, our Father. I mentioned that commentators typically... They skip right to the, our Father who art in heaven and they focus on the Father who is in heaven, which is great and understandable. But that word hour, I think we miss something really, really beautiful about that prayer by not meditating upon that. And I guess because this prayer has become just a really incredibly beautiful part of my walk with Jesus and my intimacy with him when I pray and seek him, uh, sometimes able, you know, the opportunity to spend a lot of time just in this prayer as I'm seeking him and just kind of, because the prayer is not just, I, I, and I encourage you to pray the prayer word for word, but it's also a model prayer on how we ought to pray. It gives us direction. So it, you don't always have to do it exactly by rote. You can say, our Father who art in heaven, you know, and praise him that he's your father, that's your pater, father there. He's your Abba, father, that he's, in the he- that he's in the heavens, you know, and that he rules, and, and that his name is Hallowed. And, and as you begin to say, Hallowed be thy name, you might there just show your uh, adoration for him. You might praise him and worship and glorify him and talk and praise him for being the sovereign one, for being the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Almighty, amen? The Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty God. And just praise him. So the prayer becomes a model. And I want to encourage you guys to just pray that God would help you appreciate this prayer more and want to pray it more because I really, I'll tell you what, man, I've been in the Lord a lot of years. This prayer brought my walk as I continued to, and I prayed all my Christian walk, but as I really began to meditate upon it more and more, at different times in my walk, it became even more and more important to me. It made my walk with the Lord more beautiful. And I specifically am looking at this prayer also in the context of spiritual warfare that we're in because it's a perfect prayer for spiritual warfare because we are in battle with the enemy but it's also a perfect prayer for the end of days for the last days when we face the uh, final uh, days the end of days as it's called in scripture the last days as it's called in scripture uh, 
uh, because it pertains to so many things that pertain to the last days. And it's a cry for the Lord's kingdom to come, amen? And his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's many, many incredible things about this prayer. But I think it's very important that we really get our hearts and our brains around it and appreciate it for all that it is. And I did, last week, I spent time on our. This week, I want to do that one more time, but take it in a quite a different direction that I think will really bless you. When you come to just that first term, our, and how it's connected to many other plural pronouns after that, and then you realize how it includes your brothers and your sisters in the prayer, and you realize how that fits with regard to spiritual warfare, the end of days, your, your practical walk with the Lord Jesus Christ today, it becomes a huge and incredible blessing. In fact, it's interesting, our Father, the word our is there in the Greek as the first word in the word order in the Greek there in the Sermon on the Mount. And we read uh, our Father, the Greek word ours, himon. And it's, it's just a plural pronoun that speaks of not just mine, but our a community. Uh, and, and of course, the uh, context has to do with who the community is being spoken of there. In this context, it's the other disciples, amen? All those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something you really want to get your brain around. Is I told you last week that this word hour just set my heart alight and gave me joy, having me realize, even though I didn't know any Christians when I got saved, that there are all kinds of other people praying this prayer that love the Lord, that knew Jesus. Not that if you pray this prayer, you know Jesus, you've got to make sure you have the right Jesus and the right gospel. But when I saw that hour, I thought, man, and then guess what? Now I realize I'm fellowshipping with a bunch of them today. And I have bro- we have brothers and sisters all around the world. We have hundreds of millions of professing Christians. And I have no doubt that millions and millions of those are genuine believers that really love Jesus, having met so many people uh, that love the Lord not knowing exactly how many believers. The Lord knows who are his. But I don't want to focus on that so much, of that joy of knowing that we have brothers and sisters. But last week, if you remember, we looked at the book of Acts. And we looked at several prayers throughout the book of Acts in the Acts of the Apostles where they were praying together as a community of believers. Amen? You don't need to be among other believers to pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, you could be anywhere, but you're also praying, not just yourself, but for other people. Now, this is what blows me away, is that word our is just a hint from the get-go, because I counted the plural pronouns used in this short little prayer, and this, it's only, this is a very short prayer, but you prayed in 20 seconds, but it has nine plural pronouns that refer to the group our. In fact, in Matthew 6, you can follow along if you want, but just go and I highlighted the uh, plural pronouns, our Father, our, who art in heaven. Give us, the word us, this day, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive for forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Isn't that amazing? Do you know it never shifts to me? You know it's not me, 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 nine times. It's our, us, we, amen. And This prayer, I believe, was given by Jesus in a beautifully subversive way. And I don't mean subversive in the bad sense. I mean righteously subversive in the best of senses. 
Meaning, he gave us this prayer to teach us to die to ourselves and to submit to the will of the Father and consider that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when we first become believers, when we first become believers, I mentioned this last time, our prayers tend to be because we're like babies. We're newborn. Amen? And the Bible talks about how we must become born again. And the scriptures talk about how when we're, we're new Christians, you're born again. You're born from above. You're born anew. You're children of God. And the Bible talks about moving from babyhood to spiritual adolescence, amen? And then to st- spiritual adulthood, spiritual parenthood, where you're a father in the faith, so to speak, where you're a parent in the faith, where you're bringing other people to Christ and helping and bringing other births into the world, you know, by leading people to Christ. And Paul became the spiritual father to many people, and he uses that terminology. And we're not supposed to stay babies, but what do babies think about when they first are born? And for the first period of their infancy, Are they concerned about the needs of everybody else? No. They're concerned about their own needs. One way you can see if you've grown in your spiritual walk or not beyond babyhood is if you're strictly just saying me, me, me in your prayers. That's a sign of spiritual infancy. And Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews chapter 5 that it's important to get beyond our spiritual infancy. We need to become those who pray not just for ourselves, but for those, for others as well. So we first get saved, you know, our prayers are like, you know, God, help me grow, you know. You know, Lord, and it's not a bad prayer. It's a good prayer. It's nothing bad in itself. But if it stays about me all the time in my prayer life, that shows you that I have a self-focus and I'm still an infant, you know. And today there's many who just simply need to be born again and they use prayer as a weapon or a uh, a incantation uh, like magic or something like witchcraft to get their own will done. That's not what God's calling us to either. You know, prayer becomes how you get your best life now, you know, or how you get what you want and you name it and you claim it. You, you you know, you you brag it, then you snag it and you, you you know, all these different, I think that's a new one by the way, (laughs) but uh, you know, you, you, you just speak it into existence and that's not what prayer is. God's not a force or cosmic bellhop. So I encourage you guys, and I'm not saying not to pray for your own personal needs and that you can't say, Lord, help me. You know, there's prayers like that throughout the scripture. That's part of our prayer life. But don't forget our, we, us, amen? And I love that about this prayer because I'm called, I'm told in scripture by the apostle Paul, you know, to pray at all times and to pray for all the saints, amen? So when I'm praying our Father, give us, you know, our daily bread, things like that, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters who I know and love, but I'm also praying for brothers and sisters that I haven't even met. So it's a great prayer because this prayer, when I say it's subversive in a righteous way, the prayer itself is about seeking him and growing in him, but the prayer itself teaches you to be weaned of self, to be weaned from a narcissistic type attitude. And when we become Christians, we're called to take up our crosses, die to ourselves, right, daily, man, and follow him. But what happens, we take up our crosses and we could easily stub our toe and we begin to look at our toe and we cry out to God about our toe and we forget about our crosses and we forget about others that need encouragement in carrying their crosses. So it's important that we understand the beauty of this prayer. 
And what I love about this prayer as well is Jesus walked his talk. You know, Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? To go to the cross. Not my will, not me, 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 but your will be done. And who was he going to the cross for, guys? To die for us, amen? It was for the Father's glory. It was for the joy set before him. But his joy was because he was going to get a bride and bring many sons to glory. And you know what trips me out? Before he goes to the cross, you want to know what his prayer may have been like? Because it doesn't say what, uh, much of what he said there. Talks about heavy crying there in book of Hebrews. Hematrodosis says uh, that, you know, his capillaries popped and blood oozed out with the sweat, which was a medical phenomena that was not even understood at those, that time. Luke, of course, the physician, could document what happened, but God himself knew what was going on. With just a hundred cases in forensic science or more now, uh, having discovered the phenomena of hematrodosis. But it says that Jesus' blood mixed with his sweat as he cried out to the God. He was in great anguish. And it's a blow mind because when you look at what he's praying for, he's going to the cross. At the cr- Remember to Pilate, he said he could call 12 legions of angels, right? He didn't have to go to the cross. Before he became a man, he could say, Father, I'm not going to do it. But you know, when you want to see what his prayer may have been like, I know what his prayer was like in John chapter 17 before he goes to the cross. And that's his high priestly prayer. The whole chapter is his prayer. And guess who he's praying for over and over and over again in the high priestly prayer in John 17? Guess who? His disciples. Amen? I'm trying to encourage you to be a prayer warrior. God calls us to be prayer warriors of sorts. We're soldiers for Christ. Amen? We're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. And after he mentions all these pieces of armor, he says, that's when he says, praying at all times for all the saints. Amen? We're supposed to be men and women of prayer. And, it does, and that means we're not just praying for ourselves. We're concerned about our fellow soldiers. Amen? And as we grow in the Lord and we become more like him, we become more concerned about others and their spiritual welfare. Amen? So in John 17, he, he doesn't only pray for his immediate disciples. He certainly prays for them, you know? Right? He prays for them, and, but he also prays for the future spiritual warfare they will have. John 17, 15, he says, you know, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, like, like a, you know, this pre-trib rapture kind of thing, but that you would keep them or protect them from the evil one. And it's interesting, he prays that you would sanctify them by their truth. He prays that they would be one in doctrine, in, in God's truth, so that, and in spirit, so that the world will know that the Father sent him. So he's also praying for the lost, isn't he? And he's praying also for the church today, because he says, I don't just pray for them, but I pray for those in the future who will believe in me through their message. Isn't that heavy, man? Now, get, it really is heavy to me, because guess what? He's going to the cross, He's going to be forsaken by his own disciples who have already fallen asleep in the garden. And he's going to the cross to bear our sins. And he's going to go through the greatest anguish that anybody's ever experienced, yet he's praying for us who become believers 2,000 years later. Is that amazing? And that is, he's an example to us, amen? Amen. So that's what our prayer, sh- prayer life should look like. I love it when I pray with my wife and 
We've been praying for their spouses long before, you know, before their spouses were maybe even born in some cases. When we were married, before we had kids. And God's been working that out pretty good. But Jesus was praying for us 2,000 years early, you know? So I'm telling you right now, I'm encouraging you. Does that encourage you when you look at his prayer life? How we ought to pray for others, and that will bring us into maturity. And, and Jesus said every disciple, when the master disciple, when the discipler is done with him, will look like his master. So we're supposed to learn to pray through the prayer he's given us, but the prayer he gives us teaches us to get our eyes on the Father's glory. Hallowed be thy name, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The Father's will. And our brothers and sisters be, uh, as well as us because we are not an island unto ourselves. Amen? So, I love this. I love it. It's just, to me, uh, so uh, beautiful. And not only in 6.18 does Paul say, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. He says to pray at all times in that same verse. But James says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And of course, at that point, it's like, wow, praise God, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the first thought you might have, well, you know, how righteous am I? Well, outside of Christ, we're all sinners doomed, right? But we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're robed in his righteousness through faith. Amen. And he's given us new hearts toward him. And when he says, a fervent prayer of righteous man availeth much, that's a packed verse. I've done a whole couple messages in the past just on that verse. But you know what? He goes on to talk about Elijah, who was a man with a nature just like ours. What's his point? That, yeah, you're a fallen person. So was Elijah. But his prayers were incredibly effective. Amen. Because if you look to the Lord in faith, amen, you're declared righteous and your prayers have power because not that your prayer is powerful, but the power that's unleashed through God's working by his Holy Spirit when you pray in accordance with his will is absolutely stunning and mind-blowing. Now, it's interesting. This floors me too. When you pray for others, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, uh, our debtors, as we forgive those who have sinned against us so, or who owe us. Amen. That, that, I mean, this whole thing, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. It's so powerful because guess what Jesus has you doing? He has you praying not only for your own forgiveness, Right? but for the forgiveness of your brothers and sisters. Think about that. Think about that and think what that entails. And you're going to understand, it hit me even after my message was done when I was coming out here and praying about it, you know, that this is a righteously subversive prayer. It hit me just like a ton of bricks because you're going to see what Jesus is doing here. He's basically just turning our flesh upside down to where it's just, we, we ignore it, we say no, count it dead, live for Jesus, and align with his will in praying for others. Because there's some heavy things going on here that I want you to penetrate with me, with your mind. And I haven't found any commentaries, and I've got several, you know, commentaries on this prayer that deal with the word our, okay? 
So I've just been seeking the Lord on it, but because I pray this prayer all the time, every word is just, I shouldn't say every word, but pretty much every word is just so beautiful to me. And I'll tell you what, what I've learned from just that word and what it showed me what Jesus is doing here that's very, very profound with just that first word in the context in which it falls everywhere else. And that is, he wants to make sure that you have a healthy, not just appreciation and just, you're, not that you're just, he wants to not only be stunned before the Father's glory and praying that his name's hallowed his, and focus on his coming kingdom, but he wants you to be enraptured with the concept of being in the body of Christ and praying for others and seeing how beautiful that is as part of the body of Christ and living in harmony with your brothers and sisters because this prayer underscores that emphasis in his teaching. Because there's an interesting, interesting, very interesting uh, thing going on with Job. Job, you know, he's, he gets, you know, he goes through the most radical trial that anybody went through pretty much on earth besides Jesus, perhaps, amen. We know Jesus went through the worst of all because he bore the sins of the entire world. But Job, for me, I, I don't see anything going through the gamut quite like he did, you know. The greatest anguish was not being diseased from head to toe as bad as that would be. It wasn't losing all of his material goods and he had many. He's an incredibly rich man. It wasn't just all the demonic attacks as bad as they would be. It wasn't his wife turning on him and telling him to curse God and die. That was probably right up there, right? It was his thinking that God didn't forgive him because of sin he had committed when that wasn't even true. The Lord declared him righteous from the first verses onward in the book of Job. That was, the, to me, the most striking thing about his trial is he felt like he couldn't be right with the God he loved so much. But another thing that really burned him and really hurt him was he had a reputation to be a man of God. He literally would wake up in the morning and sacrifice a bullock for his children so just in case one of them had cursed God, it says. This is a man who wanted his kids to be right with God. This man went great extents to live for the Lord. Yet his friends... Eliphaz and, you know, Bildad, Zophar, these guys, a lot of them anyway, condemned him and said, you must be guilty of secret sin, Job. You must have done something really bad that nobody knows about for calamity to fall upon your house in such a destructive way. And they said it in different ways, sometimes by way of implication, sometimes more directly. And they condemned him. And you remember... They argued. He argued with them. He was upset with them. He called them what? Do you remember what he called them? What kind of comforters? Miserable comforters you are. You know? Miserable counselors. Miserable comforters. And he even began to get defensive and extol his own righteousness. But he never cursed God and committed suicide. He held on. Ne never, never give up, guys. There's always light at the end of the tunnel no matter how dark it seems to be, and no matter how long the darkness seems to prevail, the light will come if you hold on to Jesus. Amen. Amen. And our lives are like vapors, so it will not be that long if you're presently in a trial. But what's very interesting, when the Lord cleared Job, now the Lord stood before him because Job had it to be dealt with still. 
because Job started to exalt himself and he, and he started to talk about, you know, how he's righteous and how God, there must be something wrong that God's not seeing. He kind of started to doubt the Lord, but he didn't deny him. And the Lord said, will you condemn me to exonerate yourself, Job? And he appeared to Job in a whirlwind, you know, and just power and said, where were you when I created the earth? You know, and the morning stars sang and the sons of God shouted for joy, you know. And he talked about Leviathan and he talked about these amazing animals and that no one can tame and how these are just like his little rubber duckies in the ocean that he could just play with and sport with. They're no big deal, you know. And that's how radical the Lord is, how, he, how awesome he is compared to, I mean, he created everything. You can't measure space, Job, or the depths. And Job said, I repent, you know, in sackcloth and ashes. He put it over his hand over his mouth, remember? And he was just, said he abhorred his, his flesh, you know. He's like, he realized what he had done. But the Lord said that Job was innocent in respect to what they were accusing him of. But that they, his miserable comforters, were the ones who had sinned. Isn't that heavy? Think about that. They're the ones that blew it. But you know what? Did you know even after that, and even though God had set Job aright as far as understanding who he was, that Job was still in bondage. That Job was still held captive in some way by the enemy. And we don't even understand the captivity that he was in fully, you know? And maybe we don't even, maybe we can't even say it was specifically by the enemy, but he was held captive. How do we know? Because at the very end, near the very end of Job, in Job chapter 42, verse 10, if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. In Job chapter 42, verse 10, it says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. What in the world does that mean? And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. That's a phrase that was not uncommon in biblical times in the scripture itself. But it, it, typically it's referring to physical captivity and being set free from being a physical prisoner. But here it's used metaphorically. Somehow, the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Wait, when did he turn the captivity of Job? When was Job set free? Anybody reading the text? It says, when he what? Job 42.10. When he what? When he prayed. Amen. Now, who was he praying for? His friends. Amen. And the Lord instructed him to pray for his friends. And he made a sacrifice for his friends. And he interceded for his friends. And he was a picture of Jesus in that respect. Amen. But guess what? He's also a real man who was not Jesus and also experienced these events as a man, as a picture to us as to how we are to meet our trials. So you know what? Job's skin would clear up. His family would come and his relatives would come from places and his acquaintances would come and they'd all give him like a gold coin or what have you and restore some of his wealth. And it says he'd even be blessed twice as much. Even though all that was going to happen, there was a way he was still captive. Even though he was being restored, there was something that had to take place. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. 
Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Is that amazing? Check that out, guys. Now, giving him twice as much as he had before is the also. Being set free from being a captive is the first stage. Think about it, guys. What in the world is going on there? How was he held captive? How, are, how can we be held captive until we pray? He didn't just pray for his friends. He prayed for people that he had what going on with. Really hard times, amen? People that he was arguing with. People that he had called names, or at least called them miserable comforters. Okay? He was upset. Okay? He was debating with them. He was arguing with them. And even though he was right, guess what? He had a contentious thing going on with his friends. His ire was raised because he was being falsely accused. Can you imagine? I mean, already, can you imagine your friends collectively falsely accusing you? Add to that, your whole family has just been pretty much killed except for your wife. And you're diseased all over the place. And you haven't done anything wrong that you can think of. And you've lost your business and everything. And you've become a ridicule. And you're scraping your sores with pot shirt. And they're telling you that you're wicked. That would be hard if none of those other things happened and your friends all started saying that to you. Be hard to forgive them, but add the insults to the deep cutting injury, and you have a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. I'll suggest to you the captivity that Job was in was that he had contention with his friends and he needed to soften his heart toward them and have mercy on them and forgive them. Because that's what the animal sacrifice was about. It was a picture of Christ, amen. It was a picture of giving them mercy and grace, amen. And that's what his prayers were about, praying that they would receive mercy. But you can understand, in the midst of Job's trial, do you think he thought a lot about them as far as how they were wrong with God and they need to get right and, and oh man, they're in trouble? Probably not a lot about that because he's going through all kinds of anguish. But now he's being restored by the Lord and now he sees, wow, these guys are in trouble. And that always helps me to pray for people that are hard to pray for. What am I talking about? We see a lot of wickedness going on in the world today. That's, isn't that right? A lot of lawlessness, a lot of violence, a lot of senseless violence at that. And it's very easy to get in the flesh because there's a righteous anger, but we have to be careful that our righteous anger, when you see those things happen, doesn't spill over to a fleshly anger where you feel like doing something stupid or you use bad language or you have wicked thoughts or what have you. But what helps me pray for people is I keep in mind that people that are separated from God, that reject their creator and reject the forgiveness that he offers are doomed to eternal separation from him forever and ever in the lake of fire. Then all of a sudden, if I'm personally hurt by somebody or someone in my family or my, one of my brothers and sisters is hurt by someone, it's easier for me to pray for them and have a disposition of mercy and forgiveness toward them, wanting them to be forgiven by the Lord through repentance, if I consider the bigger picture. Are you with me? So when Job sees that they're in trouble with the Father, that he wasn't in trouble this whole time, as bad as his trial was, in regard to his relationship being in jeopardy with God, other than this, he's fallen captive to un 
forgiveness. Are you guys listening to this? This is important stuff. This is life-changing stuff if you get your heart and your mind around it and you actually allow the Lord to work in your heart here that you need to recognize that those who are off. Now, if somebody is hurting you and it's unbiblical, it's wrong, it's evil, that means that person is not walking with God, amen? And that person is doomed if they're not walking with God and they need to get right, amen? So they need our prayers. And all of a sudden, guess what? If you're struggling with unforgiveness, I can't believe that person put a knife in my back. I can't believe it, and it hurts. Ah, how could that person do that? Then you start to realize, wait a minute, man, that person has blood on their hands now, spiritually speaking. That person is not right with God, right? No one who hates his brother knows the Lord, it says, but they're a murderer. So what happens is you begin to realize, man, whatever pain you're going through, if you're walking with Jesus, guess what? You're right with God. You're, you're heaven-bound, amen? But guess what? It doesn't matter how much it hurts because compared to what they're going through, they're going to be eternally separated from God, amen? Their soul is doomed if they're not right with God. And you should start to realize, wow, that person needs prayer. I should feel sorry for that person that's hurt me because they're blinded by their pride, their ego, their selfism, their narcissism, their anger, whatever it is. And your heart should be one of prayer toward them. But the heavy thing about it, this is the beauty. Let's say you're struggling forgiving someone. There's anger. There's unforgiveness. There's bitterness or any of those things to one degree or another. And you're refusing to let it go. And the word forgive means to let go. And it means to let go and that you're not seeking to get your own vengeance on a person, you know? And that you're not going to seek to retaliate. That you're not seeking their destruction, that you're letting it go and not holding it against them. But guess what? That person that's wrong with God, Christ provided the atonement for them, amen? But they have to repent and put their faith in Christ to be forgiven, amen? So you're praying for them, and guess what? If I'm in a position where I'm really hurting over an issue, and then, wow, that person is a person that needs prayer, and you begin to pray with for that person, that's letting it go, Amen? In fact, that's going beyond letting it go. Now you're praying for the person that's hurt you, which is very biblical because it says, don't return evil for evil, but rather return a blessing, saith the scripture, amen? So you pray for a blessing to be upon that person. Lord, bless them. Help them to see their folly. Help them to repent and get right with you so you can forgive them. Help them to know you before it's too late. And guess what? In the very turning of a heart of unforgiveness or contention and anger that you may have to prayer, in that very turn, that's, a, that's an act of repentance, a metanoia, a change of heart, a change of mind from seeking their destruction to seeking what? Their welfare in the Lord. And guess what? If you are held captive because of your sin of unforgiveness, you are set free and the Lord turns your captivity from you. Amen? Are you understanding where this is at now? In fact, it's very, very scriptural because you're going to see how this ties into uh, the premise of my message that this is a righteously subversive prayer is <laughs> in so many ways it's just a blow mind if you go to Matthew chapter 6 again pick it up at verse 12 what does Jesus say he tells us to pray this way our father who art in heaven a couple of verses earlier but then he says what and forgive us our what and forgive us our debts forgive us our debts not just my debts our debts 
When you're praying, forgive us our debts. Let's say it's a brother who you feel like put a knife in your back. When you say forgive us our debts, who are you praying for at that moment? Not just yourself, but your, and not just your other brothers and sisters, but you're also praying for who? For him, the, the brother who put the knife in your back. Isn't that a trip? Think about that. This is really heavy when you think about it. You're, the, the Lord is boxing you in if you're going to sincerely follow him and be his disciple and be like him. Jesus said, love your enemy, and then you'll be like your father in heaven who loves his enemies. Amen? 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 And to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brothers. No greater love is one have than he lays down his life for his friends, right? And Jesus went and walked his talk and did that. Guess what he's doing right there, man? He's telling you, pray this way, our Father. Now, do you think the disciples had some contention with each other at times? Yeah. It says that they argued. They had a strong argument, Luke chapter 22, about who was the greatest. Why do you think Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter's like, how many times do I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, Jesus? 70 times seven, Peter. And then he begins to give him a parable that he directs at Peter, which shows you that Peter was having some problems to one degree or another. That's really heavy when you think about it. So he gives them this prayer, pray this way, and they're praying, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Peter's praying, not just for himself, but Peter, James, John. Remember James and John? Their mother goes up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, you know, put John on one side of you and, and James on the other side. How about we make this kind of deal, right? Remember that? And the other disciples were angry, right? They should be happy to get in the door, but they were upset about that. And remember, they refused to wash watch each other's feet on the, the Passover service because that was a tradition. If there wasn't a, uh, a servant there washing your feet, you, the first person in there was supposed to wash everybody's feet. Nobody's washing each other's feet. Jesus gets a basin out, gets water, washes their feet and says, I've left you an example. Happy are you if you do likewise. But that, it's in that context that it says that they were arguing about who was the greatest. So there was some consternation, some bitterness going on with them at times. They're real people. And guess what? Jesus is telling them to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, and forgive us our sins. Peter, when, I pray, when Peter prays that, he's praying for James and John. Right? right? Amen. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Ooh, then the rejoiner. As we forgive those who sin against us. Now what's he praying? What are they praying? Forgive us our sins. What are we praying? Forgive us our sins in the same way that we forgive others. And you know what that means? It's pretty clear. If you're forgiving others and you're asking the Father for forgiveness, you, and he doesn't let you off. You cannot amend that prayer. You can't say, I don't like that second part. Father, forgive, forgive me my sins. No, you have to pray, forgive us our sins. And you have to say, as we forgive those who sin against us. Whoa, what's he doing? He's getting you to pray for others while you pray for your own forgiveness, praying for their forgiveness. And then he's letting you know that you're praying to be, to be forgiven the way you forgive others. Wow. And just so we don't misunderstand what he's saying or try to explain it away, which I'm sure many commentators would have tried he doesn't let us out of it because in verse 14, he goes on to say, which I think is very, very heavy. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. For if you forgive others, their transgressions, says Jesus, catch this. For if you forgive others, their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. 
That's his commentary on that prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you know, why would he, why would he not only put that in the prayer, but why would he give commentary as to the meaning of that part of the prayer? Because he wanted them to understand. He knew there, some of them are thinking, wait a minute, man, I'm praying forgive for forgiveness. And it's conditional upon whether I forgive or not. Yeah. Well, is that really what he means? Yeah, because Jesus says, if you forgive your brother, your father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive your brother his transgressions, your father in heaven will f- refuse to forgive you. Wow. So in other words, brothers and sisters, if I'm harboring unforgiveness towards somebody or certain people, right, and I won't let it go, forgive me to let go, right, I'm captive. And it's not until I let it go, right, and I'm willing to pray this prayer, our Father, forgive us our debts for them, forgive them too, right, as we forgive those our debtors that I can be released from the prison that I've, I'm in. How do I mean? Well, there's another time where Jesus actually uses the example of being imprisoned eternally. And it's very, very heavy. This is when Peter again goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Because Jesus said one time to Peter and the disciples, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, forgive him. You're thinking, wow, that's a lot. Well, aren't you guys happy that God's like that toward you? I am. Amen. But check this out. Peter goes to him and says, what, up to seven times? I mean, is that the limit? Do I need to do up to seven times? And Peter's probably wondering because the Jews had a, a rule in their tradition that you could only had to forgive a person three times. And after three times, you didn't have to forgive him anymore. And Jesus says, seven times in a day. Blew Peter away. And now Peter's like, wait, up to seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says, not seven, Peter, but what? Seventy times seven. And you're, you're doing the math right now, but you're not really intended to do the math. That's 490. The number seven in the Bible is a number of what? Completion. He's basically saying continue to have a heart of forgiveness. Amen? And aren't you glad? Do you think the Lord stopped forgiving you at 490, by the way? Or at seven? David said, if you were to count his sins, it was like the number of hairs on his head. Because anytime we fall short in the slightest way, it's sin. We all fall short of God's glory. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. Whenever you fail to love the way Jesus loved, that's sin. Because we fall short of his glory in some way. So then I find myself, I try to always love as much as I can, but I'm far from perfect. So I find myself always saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to love more. Lord, help me to be the person you want me to be more. Help me to be a better better dad. Help me to be a better father. Help me to be a better friend. Help me to be a better brother, be a better pastor. I'm I'm always falling short because I'm far from perfect. I'm not walking on water yet. When I get into a swimming pool or I go to the ocean, I sink like everybody else. I need Jesus, man. And I'd sink right to hell if it wasn't for his grace. So we depend on his grace. So you see this prayer. Now, when Jesus said that, then Peter was given a uh, Jesus told a story to illustrate how important it is that we forgive. And do you remember the story? Remember the servant owed his master? Do you remember how many talents he owed his master? 10,000 talents. By the way, a talent was the biggest denomination of money in those days. And by the way, the number 10,000 was the biggest number that you could write down in Greek. 
So when you wanted to write a big number, you'd write, you know, you'd write the word for 10,000. And he takes the biggest number that was used for, for numbers in those days. If you wanted to say more, you say 10,000 times 10,000, like it says in Revelation of, of the angels, you know. But 10,000 talents. And by the way, it would take a working man to earn a talent. It would take him, guess what? An entire lifetime on average. That's like 10,000 lifetimes of sin, of work it would take to work off what that guy owed his master. And he begged his master, you know, to give him a chance to work it out, not to throw him in prison. And you know what? His master didn't even let him have to work it out. He forgave him 10,000 talents. And then what did that servant go and do after he was forgiven 10,000 talents? Do you remember? He found a servant of, a fellow servant of his. Now this was master servant. There's a greater gulf there. That's incredible mercy. This was another servant after he's forgiven that great debt. He goes and starts choking this guy who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for labor. So it's a hundred days of work compared to 10,000 lifetimes of work. Now I used to, when I was a new Christian, wonder why Jesus didn't say a widow's mite. Just like nothing. So it would be so insignificant compared to the incredible numbers he was using of the forgiveness he gives us. And then it dawned on me one time, I know why he didn't make it nothing. Because guess what? When we get hurt by other people, it doesn't feel like nothing, does it? It could be very painful. Somebody could owe, that's like a third of a year's worth of wages that's been withheld from you. And this guy owes him 100 denarii, so it hurt. But instead of recognizing how much he's been forgiven, say, wow, I was forgiven 10,000 talents. That 100 denarii is nothing by way of comparison. Hey, brother, don't worry, man. You know what? If you can't pay me back, you know, no big deal. I mean, I was just forgiven 10,000 talents, believe it or not. I can't believe the mercy that's been shown me. That's nothing compared to what I've been shown. No problem, bro, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Guess what? Instead, what does he do? He begins to choke that servant. Wow. Wow. Now think about that. We've all gone through a lot of things. But you've been through nothing compared to what we put through the Lord through and the grieving that we've caused his heart. And we need to look at what we've been through and it, and it can hurt still. Like the hundred denarii, it can be painful. But guess what? We've been forgiven and the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts as Christians. We have the fruit of the Spirit which is love and peace and joy, right? Long suffering, right? Forgiveness. Uh, uh, patience, you know? Being able to forgive because we have love. Guess what? It's important to understand that we should be ready to forgive. The Bible says, forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, when you stand praying, he said, make sure you forgive your, your brother in your heart if you have something against him, so you too will be forgiven. This is all over his teaching. And it's right here in this parable of the unmerciful servant. Because one of the servants goes to the master and says, hey, that guy you forgave? Guess what? He went and he's choking out. He's totally choking out a, 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 a guy that owed him something. And guess what the master said at that point? Neither now do I forgive him. He rescinded his forgiveness. He says, take that wicked servant. And by the way, the Bible says, don't be deceived, the unrighteous or the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Take that wicked servant, bind him hand and foot. Right? Well, let's see what he says. Go ahead and go uh, to 
Matthew chapter 18, we'll just, we won't read the whole thing because I just went through a lot of it, but verses 32 through 35. Matthew 18, 32 through 35. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. By the way, that word torturers is used in Scripture over and over again. Uh, the cognate of that particular Greek word is used of torment and hell. Okay? Handed over to the torturers until he should repay what? All that was owed him. Wow. He owed 10,000 talents. How long do you think it would take to pay 10,000 talents off while you're in prison? You'd never do it. And by the way, Jesus said of those who are going to hell that they won't get out until they pay the last cent. <laughs> you can never do it. If you could pay off your salvation, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. This guy is doomed. Unless, of course, guess what? He repented and he forgave and showed mercy before he actually gets there, you know? My, now look at this. Then he looks to Peter. This is heavy, guys. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not what? Forgive his brother from your what? From your heart. In other words, guess what? This isn't easy believism here, guys. This isn't OSAS, you know. Once forgiven. Does the Bible teach once forgiven, always forgiven? Is that, is that what this teaches here? Once forgiven, always forgiven? No. no. It teaches you can be radically forgiven. But you can reject that grace and mercy by not continuing in the faith. We're not saved by good works, but good works are evidence of our faith. And by refusing to forgive, you're showing that you're not looking to Jesus in the faith anymore. It's really heavy. This guy was, became captive, didn't he? Right? Job, the captivity of Job was turned by the Lord. When? When he prayed for what? his friends. Amen. When you pray our Father who art in heaven and you emphasize forgive us our sins and you recognize that you want your brothers and sisters who may have hurt you forgiven. Amen. And you forgive them in that prayer. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. You want them to not experience the consequences of their sin. Amen. So the very term our Father from the get-go shows that you are seeking the Father and you want your brothers and sisters to have a right relationship with your Father as well. Amen? And what it is a prayer about that stuns me is from the very get-go, He wants us not to just think about our own lives being right with Him. From the very beginning, our Father, He wants us to want our brothers and sisters to be right with Him. He wants us to be jealous for God's glory. He wants us to be uh, desirous of our brothers and sisters' personal welfare and being concerned about their salvation and where they are. Are you with me tonight? So this is very, very important, very, very beautiful. In fact, when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's imperative that you understand that one of Satan's greatest tactics is unforgiveness. You know, there's an old story where a guy, you know, has a vision of hell. This is a story, not true. And he sees in the spiritual realm all of these barns 
little and big that Satan has. And by the way, the Bible does talk about how the tongue is set afire from hell and it talks about the gates of hell, but Satan doesn't actually live in hell. You understand that, right? He goes about on the earth deceiving and he actually accesses heaven. The scriptures say where he accuses the brethren day and night, comes back as we're in line seeking to devour people. But anyway, as the story goes, he had one especially big barn with all kinds of seeds that he uses for deception. And the man asked, what's in that barn? And the enemy answered, those are seeds of unforgiveness. I find them very effective in my work. And you know what? It's interesting because, and I changed that story. I've heard that story before and it has a seeds of discontentment. That's a powerful weapon too. But I think his biggest barn is probably seeds of unforgiveness. Because listen to what Paul talks about. Satan has a lot of weapons in his armory against us. But unforgiveness, anger, malice, bitterness, these are among his greatest. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, to be angry and don't sin. Don't give a foothold to who? The devil. That's when Paul goes on to say, he goes on to say, put away all bitterness and wrath wrath and malice and so forth and forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus and be imitators of God, amen, who forgave you in Jesus. So it's in that context that we're called to follow Jesus' example and forgive others. And in, in, check this out, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, Paul says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, I have forgiven any, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for the sakes of, the, in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. I forgave, so no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. One of his schemes he'll use in many marital relationships is the sin of unforgiveness. Marriages are through the, our divorces are uh, through the roof right now since there's been five, six months of COVID, way beyond what they were last year at this time in this, this, in this year's span. And a lot of this is because people have been forced to live together who hadn't lived together for years, but were like ships passing the night, just controlling things. But all of a sudden, unforgiveness came out in many cases. They had to face their problems. They had to make choices. In many cases, I'm sure there was sin and not repentance. In some cases, it was repentance perhaps, but not forgiveness. The Lord knows. But don't let the enemy, especially if you're professing Christ as your Lord and Savior, to use this weapon of bitterness and unforgiveness against you. Amen? In fact, in Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, it says regarding bitterness, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. How do you fall short of the grace of God? Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by it many become defiled wow so bitterness is as we say it's a poison that you swallow first and causes you to die before it affects anybody else and i modified that because the saying says poison is or bitterness is a pill that by which you poison yourself but not others that's not biblical though because guess what The Bible says bitterness can defile many. So I modify that quote by saying, yeah, it's a pill that is a poison that kills you first, though. 
because guess what? You can't have the grace and forgiveness. You fall short of the grace of God here, it says. You can't have his forgiveness if you are consumed with bitterness and you refuse to forgive others. Now think about this. Did you go through what Jesus went through on the cross when somebody hurt you? Not close. But when Jesus went to the cross, did he deserve it? No. He went through that for you because of your sin and my sin. Amen? So anything I go through is always going to be short of the cross and what he went through innocently. The difference is, is guess what? Joe Schimmel deserves hell. Amen? So anything I go through is never anything close to what I ultimately deserve. Amen? And guess what? What we went through, he didn't deserve at all. So you put it in perspective and you say, wait, I've been forgiven 10,000 talents. I deserve hell. Whatever I went through is nothing close to what I deserve. And Jesus went through all that and took my sin and everybody else's upon himself so I could be forgiven and I'm going to whine and complain and become a bitter person toward others. No, I choose not to by the grace of God. Amen. And you need to choose not to as well. In fact, you need to say, is there anybody in my heart right now that I'm holding things against and that I'm bitter toward? You need to get on your face before God and say, God, have mercy. That doesn't mean, when I talk about forgiveness, we're talking about having an attitude of forgiveness. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, were they all automatically forgiven of their sins? No, they had to repent, amen? But that was the grace that he was offering them. You can offer grace towards someone and have a forgiving heart toward them, but that doesn't mean they've repented and you can walk with them in their rebellion to God, amen? Do you understand that? Now, with your spouse, you're called to be married. If you're married to somebody, you're called not to leave them, uh, but win them over if they're a non-believer, amen? Unless they've committed adultery on you or they've forsaken you, then you're, then you're free, it says. But I'm telling you right now, if you're in a relationship with a person who abides, wants to be with you and you don't have biblical grounds, stay there. And if you have biblical grounds, cry out to God and say, God, give me the grace to show the love that you've shown me when you've had grounds, amen? And see if God will get you through that and maybe win them to himself. But you're not condemned if you take the grounds because the person is refusing to repent or your heart can't get over it and you have grounds. But I'm saying right now, in your relationships with one another, we, sh- we need to love each other more, amen? You know how many relationships by the millions on this planet are just sad and there's despair because of unforgiveness over a lot of little things compared to what we've done to God and how they could simply forgive each other and the relationships could have joy again? You know how many men are sleeping in separate rooms or wives in separate rooms for their spouses because something went wrong one night and they didn't forgive each other and they still haven't? Or one of them hasn't? And they could simply just forgive that and recognize, wow, what am I doing? Let me have mercy in this person and have a restoration in the relationship. Okay? Now, if you're not sleeping in the same room because your wife snores too loud or something like that, that's not the same story, you know? Well, you just the guy, right? You know? But hey, hopefully God will get you through that as well. But we need to be forgiving one another, amen, and praying for one another. Now, it blows me away because the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He was radically restored. And by the way, Job is given as an example for us in James chapter 5 as a prophet who endured great suffering but was blessed because he endured Amen. And then after that, it talks about praying for one another. And brethren, if any of you departs from the truth and one converts him back, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. So it's about prayer. It's about restoring your brother in the context of Job being brought up in his suffering. So in the New Testament, we need to have the same attitude. We need to realize what Job went through and we need to say, wait, I've never gone through anything quite like Job went through. And he got through it. God's going to get me through my trials as well. Amen. 
So it's interesting because when we pray for each other, our Father, and we're praying, not just thinking of ourselves in that prayer. And I use that because guess what? I have go-to prayers sometimes, you know? I pray songs even. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, you know? You know, uh, change my heart, Lord, amen? You know, change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me and make me. This is my prayer. I pray, pray those, creating me a clean heart, Psalm 51, amen? Renew a right spirit within me. Take not the Holy Spirit from me and so forth. That's what Psalm 51 is about. But you know what? When I pray our Father, I love it because when I use it as a model and I start praying our, then I'll start praying for you. I'll start praying for my wife and my children, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know? And I'll start praying for people that are in need because it's a reminder of my brothers and sisters to me. And Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ, the law of love. And you're supposed to bear one of those burdens. I don't know of very many better ways to bear one of those burdens than through prayer. Amen? And praying for each other. And that doesn't omit the practical side of bearing each other's burdens when you can help each other. Amen? Somebody needs a ride. Somebody needs some encouragement. Somebody needs uh, uh, scripture. Somebody needs prayer. Whatever. But guess what? You don't leave out the practical side, but you don't say, hey, I do the practical side and leave out the prayerful side either. Amen? They go hand in hand and they're both very, very important. So, in the last days, we know, and this is a prayer for the last days, the love of many will grow cold, amen? And Jesus talked to the church at Ephesus about how they had left their what? Their first love. But did you know what happened to the Apostle Paul? He was forsaken. Now, Jesus was forsaken in his greatest hour of need, amen? He was being sentenced to death, and they were denying him. Did he get bitter toward them? Or did he pray for them? Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I prayed. And he said, Satan's going to seek to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. Amen? He prayed for the, Peter. And he said that before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. On the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Amen? You know who followed his example? The Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul was also forgiven or forgiving in the midst of being deserted. In fact, it's interesting there's a man named Demas in the New Testament. And it says of Demas, Demas we know is precious to Paul because he calls him in a very sweet way one of his fellow workers. He was a fellow servant or a fellow worker of Paul's in Philemon 1.24. He also mentions him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Demas was a worker for the Lord. But guess what happened, man? Paul was going to take a trip to prison his second prison time and he was going to be sentenced to death and there he is in prison and guess who deserts him? Demas. Look, listen to 2 Timothy 4.10 says for Demas listen to this because he loved this world this world system has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica he sailed off to Thessalonica he deserted Paul and the Greek word used there in the original has the idea, contains the idea of leaving Paul in a lurch, of abandoning him at a time of critical need. And it was because Paul was going to be sentenced to death. And Demas 
Love the world more. Paul's going to go through this. I'm out of here. Sound familiar? Pretty heavy when you think about it. The New Living Translation reads, it, reads this way in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. The Weiss Translation reads, Demon, Demas let me down, having set high value on, the, on the, the, this present age and thus has become and thus has come to love it. It's serious stuff, folks, when we love the world. 1 John 2.15, and you put it before Jesus. 1 John 2.15 says, the love, whoever has the love of the world, the love of the world and the lust of the flesh the eye, and, the, and the pride of life, whoever has that, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James 4.4 4 says, you adulteresses, it's spiritual adultery. It's like going out on God and committing adultery on God because you put the world before the Lord. It says, you adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following talks about the enemies of God will be consumed with raging fire. That's pretty scary. But you know what? A few verses later, he mentions how others had forsaken him as well. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 4, 16, six verses later. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Do you know what he says at the end of that verse? It blows me away. May it not be counted against them. Do you catch that, brothers and sisters? I was praying for a study with, for you guys tonight where I could develop this theme even more because I didn't want to let it go. And man, I had no idea what the Lord was going to give me. But I'm telling you right now, at my first defense, well, it gives us his word, Amen. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That sounds a lot like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Amen? See, Paul was not going to be taken captive. And how does this fit us? How does this fit us? Well, in the end of days, because I'm giving this in the context of spiritual warfare. This, we're going through the Lord's Prayer in the context of spiritual warfare and the end of days, right? So the scriptures say, in the end of days, and it's very important that we understand this. Mark 13, 12 and 13. All the discourse, talking about the last days. Jesus said, and brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 9 and following. They will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and mislead many because losses increase. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures the end will be saved. What's he saying? Because there's so much betrayal going on and many people are going to fall away and the love of many is going to grow cold. Amen? But what must we do? Lord, don't hold, it, don't hold against them. Bring them to repentance. Amen? Because I have your grace and I've been forgiven way more than the forgiveness you're asking me to have toward them. Do you understand that? It's so critical because right now there's people that are sitting around you that may betray you. I hate to say that, but it's possible. Don't be a betrayer, okay? Stay in love with Jesus. Don't love this world system more than Jesus, amen? In fact, count yourselves dead to this world system, amen? Alive to God. And, and, and fall more and more in love with Jesus. Stay in his word and pray that God would help you love more. And pray this way, our Father, amen, who art in heaven, amen? Hallowed be thy name, right? Forgive us, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen? 
We need to guard our hearts. Demas evidently wasn't guarding his heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Wow. So brothers and sisters, when, Paul sa- when Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you have left your first love, he gave them the antidote, remember? He said, he didn't stop there. He says, remember from whence thou art fallen. They fell, they lost their first love. They lost their love of the Lord. And repent, remember? And repent and repeat. Do what you did at first. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember from whence thou hast fallen. Remember where you were. Get back. Repent, 180, right? And do the things you did at first. Go back to the Lord and begin to pray and seek him again and grow in him again. I leave you with, I leave you, leave with Jude chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 and verse 24. But dear, but you, dear friends, must build each other up, our Father, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you to eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. How does that happen? By praying our Father, looking to Jesus in the faith and receiving forgiveness through faith in the Son of God and what he's done for you on Calvary's cross through the gospel, his death for your sins, his burial and his glorious resurrection and looking forward to his grace to be revealed and his mercy at his coming. Amen. You continue to abide in Christ, continue to stand in the love of God and continue to pray that perfect prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Can we all please stand? Father God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones that are watching by live stream and participating in this fellowship time. 